So our text today is James 3, verses 1 through 12. And the book of James was probably the first New Testament book written somewhere around 15 years after the death of Christ. It was written by and large to Jewish Christians who were being heavily persecuted. And this book serves as a practical manual for Christian living rather than just a discourse in doctrine. And so Christian... I'll start off with this. If you feel that any of you, your walk is is near perfect, you might want to get a refresher in this book. Now, James wrote this epistle to challenge his readers with, with what most, um, most commentators say were 13 unique tests for us to examine our faith with, to see if it's an authentic one. And because of the heavy persecution that Christians were undergoing, James starts off his book with this as his first test. Consider all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. So as we have these bad things come in our lives, we're to have joy in those areas. It's supposed to draw us closer to Christ. And that starts off this entire book. Now, while this one seems to be a really hard test, every one of the tests in this book should cause us to examine ourselves. And the tongue is no different. So if you feel like you've walked away from today's message that you've really conquered your tongue, and this goes for myself as well, we should be alarmed. By extension, I also have to say that in today's day and age of keyboard warriors, you know who you are, that it applies there as well. So let's go into our passage today, starting in verse 1. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put the bits into the horses' mouths so they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very word of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members, and that which defiles the entire body, and sets on fire the course of our life, and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So Proverbs has a lot to say about the tongue regarding, regarding people who are foolish. 
Proverbs 17.20, he who has a crooked mind finds no good, and he who is perverted in his language falls into evil. So it talks about what do we characterize a foolish person by? Well, oftentimes by what they say. Proverbs 17.28, even a fool, when he keeps silence, is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is considered prudent. Another uh, translation says intelligent. So a foolish person sounds wise when they close the very lips that we can tell that they're foolish by. Proverbs 18.7, a fool's mouth is his ruin, and his lips are the snare of his soul. There's a lot of Proverbs and other areas of Scripture that talk about the foolish person and the speech that comes from them. And yet, the Bible also speaks about the speech that comes out of us as Christians. And that's what this passage is dealing with. So we're going to see in this passage what the Bible says about us and our tongues. So here's some fun facts. Our tongue has eight muscles. Four of them allow our tongue... Come on, I'm a dentist. I have to go over this. (laughs) Four Four of them allow us to change the shape of our tongue. The other four allow us to change the position of our tongue. And together, these muscles allow our tongue to work in many ways. So with our tongues, we taste food. The average person has about 10,000 taste buds on it. 2,000 are on the roof of the mouth, uh, cheeks and lips. About 8,000 reside on the tongue. And every taste bud has between 50 and 100 receptors in each taste receptor, which means that we've got somewhere around 1 million taste receptors. So husbands, when you tell your wives their cooking was good and you got a million reasons for it, there you go. Just do not use it if she accidentally burns your food that day. Our tongues allow us to be able to spit. Helps us to expel stuff from our mouths. It aids in digestion. It's extremely flexible and moves food around the mouth so we can continue to chew it up. It smushes food, manipulates the food, helps it mix with saliva, which carries lots of enzymes to break down that food to digest it better. It allows us to be able to swallow properly. So our tongues gather food and channels it back to the esophagus for us to swallow our food. It even helps us clean our teeth, that our tongue moves around our mouths while we eat and after we eat to sweep up loose particles of food. Now, we still have to brush and floss, but it is one of those mechanisms that really helps out a lot. But one of the major functions of our tongue is actually speech. So what we know is we we know our tongues most for that. The average person can speak between 90 and 110 110 words per minute. The fastest humans, like auctioneers, if you remember those Micro Machines commercials growing up, those guys can go up to 400 words a minute. It's absolutely incredible. I was always fascinated listening to them. But the function of speech can also be lethal, and that's what we're going to be dealing with here. Throughout Scripture, the tongue is described in a number of unflattering and sinful ways. It's described as being wicked, deceitful, perverse, full of pride, filthy, corrupt, flattering, slanderous, gossiping, blasphemous, foolish, boasting, complaining, cursing, contentious, sensual, and vile. And this is just a partial list of what we see if we go through the scriptures regarding the tongue. As one commentator said, the tongue is of great concern to James, being mentioned in every chapter of his letter. In this section, we're going 
go for today or go through today, he uses the tongue as still another test of the living faith, because the genuineness of a person's faith inevitably will be demonstrated by his speech. James personifies the tongue and the mouth as representatives of the depravity and wretchedness of the inner person. The tongue only produces what it is told to produce by the heart, where sin originates. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, and slanders, Jesus declared in Matthew 15, 19. So I've actually broken this passage today into five main points. Number one is the inability to perfectly bridle our tongue. Number two is the unrighteousness of our tongue. Number three, the power of our tongue. Number four, the hypocritical utterances of our tongue. And number five, that we will be judged by our tongue. Number one, the inability to perfectly bridle our tongue. Verse two, for we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, the Greek word for stumble here could mean to trip over something. It could also give the connotation of tripping over words. But of the five times it occurs in the New Testament, it doesn't mean tripping over anything. Every time you see it, it means sin. James here places an emphasis on speech. He goes as far to say, is if you don't sin with your speech, then you have the power to control your tongue, and therefore you are perfect. Now, this theoretical perfect person is also able to bridle his whole body then. You can bridle the tongue, you can bridle the whole body. And so what does this term bridle actually mean? Well, it's a loaded term. It means to control or to hold into check. It has a sense of being able to restrain something as well as to lead it. Now, this verse is saying that if we have the ability to perfectly control our tongue, that we can control our whole body. And while we are called to be perfectly holy, it is impossible. Now, one of us has this power to perfectly control our body nor our tongue till we receive our glorified bodies. And yet, we're still called to this standard. So verse 2b again, if anyone does not stumble what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle the whole body as well. Now, if we put bits into the horse's mouth so they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. So for those of us who have a dog, we take it and put it on a leash, don't we? Most of the time. Unless you have a really perfectly trained dog. I know, right? It's laughable. So you so you walk you walk your dog with a leash and and you can direct the dog with the leash. You can prevent it from going to certain areas reasonably well. If you have a really big dog, you better be strong, have a good strong leash. But but we use those leash to direct the dog. Well, think about now a horse. The weight and size of a horse averages somewhere around a thousand pounds and about eight feet long. They're strong. The measure of a horse is based on, we call it a horsepower, and it's based off of a horse who's able to, one horsepower is a horse able to lift 550 pounds pulling it by one foot in one second. That's pretty strong. And so for those of us who love race car drivers and, and NASCARs, think about a car that has 750 horsepower. The power of horses, this entire power of a horse, is controlled and harnessed by something called a bit. 
And so this bit is part of the bridle. Bridle is the reins that you grab onto a horse with. So you sit on the horse and you grab the reins, grab the bridle. And the bridle is connected to a bit. And this bit is what's sticking in the horse's mouth. That bit puts pressure on the roof of the mouth and especially onto the tongue. So that as you pull on the bridle one side or another, you're actually placing a lot of pressure onto very delicate parts of the horse's mouth. And with this, you're able to control the horse's speed and movement and direction. Now, the rider can't have total control over a horse, can he? I mean, everyone who's ridden a horse knows that sometimes you pull that really hard and the horse is still going to do what the horse wants to do. But in general, we've got some type of control with it. Now, the Old Testament contains a lot of references to this bridle as well. Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. So a horse is uncontrollable without that ability to pull on the bridle and pull on that bit that's pressing into the mouths. The Lord's telling us that we need to obey his word. We have an ability to comprehend it. Unlike the horse, right? We have an ability to comprehend his word, and so we need to bridle our own tongue. 2 Kings 19, verse 28, here the Lord is speaking about the king of Assyria. Because you've raged against me and your complacency has come into my ears, I will put my hook in your nose and my bit in your mouth, and I will turn you back on the way by which you came. Here he's making a reference to restraining the king who's not able to bridle himself. This reference of bit and bridle is being able to control the entire body of a horse is illustrated further in verse 4. Look at the ships also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So during the time of James, the average cargo ship was the size of about two-thirds of a football field in length, about 200 feet. Today's are even more massive, being closer to 700 feet and over 100,000 tons in weight. And just like the equestrian who's riding the horse and able to pretty much control the horse with that bridle and bit, the pilot of these large ships can cause that ship to be controlled in its direction by what? a really small rudder sitting off the back of it. This rudder is only about 2 to 3% of the size of the entire ship. And you can direct the entire ship with this. So after proclaiming that a small bit and a small rudder can control things much larger, he starts to relate to the reader in verse, nine, in verse 5a. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. So also the tongue is a small part of the body. The average male, five foot eight, about 178 pounds, and the average tongue length is about four inches. What does a tongue weigh? Yes, I know these stats too. <laughs> Little over a tenth of a pound. We have a tongue that controls and directs our entire body. 
178 pounds on average being controlled by something that's a little over a tenth of a pound. And so in this verse, James transitions to what the tiny tongue can do. It has the power to control our entire body. And the first thing he mentions is a specific sin, boasting. So the same tongue that turns our six-inch catch off the pier into a 24-inch trophy fish is the same tongue that's capable of boasting about ourselves. You know, from a secular worldview, I remember hearing the, the apps about dating and, and how to date and, and get people to like you, and this works in the business world as well. Just listen to the other person. Ask them questions. Why? Because what do we love to do about ourselves? Talk, brag, boast. No different than what we see here in James. I will say, though, that there's big boasting that comes from unbelievers as well. Because any person that I walk up to in the streets as an unbeliever and, and ask if they're going to heaven when they die, the vast majority of them say what? Yes! Why? Because I'm a pretty good person. I've done all kinds of good things. They spent all this time boasting about everything they did as if God is going to view them in terms of all the good things that they think they've done. And that God's going to somehow look favorably upon them for those good things and allow them to go to heaven. Now, if anyone in here is not a believer, if anyone in here does not know the Lord Jesus Christ, has not your head, your heart transformed, I want you to meditate on Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it is not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. God knows that the unbeliever wants to boast in the things they've done. And God says there's nothing that we can do to earn his grace. It is merely through repentance and faith in Christ. But this boasting doesn't just affect the unregenerate. It's part of the sin nature that all of us have. I know as an unbeliever, when I was an unbeliever, I boasted in the exact same things. My good works were going to get me there. God was going to have my good outweigh my bad. And then once I became a believer, that boasting just shifted to other things. So here's some warnings in Scripture about this. Love does not boast. 1 Corinthians 13, verses, verse 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. The Scriptures also tell us believers to not boast about tomorrow because we're not in control of it. Proverbs 27, verse 1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for do not know what a day may bring, what a day may bring forth. Do not boast in arrogance about what we plan to accomplish. This is also in the book of James, starting in chapter 4, verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I had to correct my own speech years ago, recognizing that even, even planning tomorrow, assuming it's going to be there, is boasting. Not knowing when our last breath is actually going to be. 
It also says, don't boast in your possessions or what you have in life. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. Jeremiah 9, 24 gives us the counter to that. It says, don't boast in those things, but here's the one thing, Christian, that you can actually boast in. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And this is also repeated in 1 Corinthians one thirty one. So that, just as is written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. The one type of boasting we are to do as Christians is boast in Christ. And that boasting in Christ should allow us to go out and preach that gospel to every creature who doesn't have the gospel, who doesn't have Christ. And so this inability to bridle our tongue and sinful boasting of our tongue despite its small stature leads us now to our second point, the unrighteousness of our tongue. Right after the fall, Adam attempted to defend himself. And how did he do so? He committed a sin with a tongue. When God questioned Adam about his eating of the forbidden fruit, did Adam say, you're right, it was me? No. He slandered God by suggesting that he was indirectly responsible. You know, God, the woman whom you gave me she gave me from the tree and I ate. Adam blames God indirectly and then blames Eve directly for a sin that he was directly responsible with. And you know what? Ever since then, we've all continued to use our, our sinful tongue in these ways. Verse 5b and into 6. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. The word for fire is used 73 times in the New Testament. Four times it means fiery or burning. 69 times it means fire as in this case. And so we see what a forest fire does. Or we just saw in Maui the type of fire, despite what you believe about where it was started. It started in some type of small spot. Forest fires in general start in one small spot or one small area. And that one small spark can destroy hundreds of thousands of acres of the habitats and wildlife that live in them. Some of these wildfires are caused by lightning strikes and lava flow. But most of the time, when they've been able to trace the start of a wildfire, it started from a small spark. Cigarette butt being tossed. A fire as you're putting it out and trying to dampen the fire and some sparks go out and start a fire. And though what rolls off the tongue seems to be an insignificant spark of fire, what kind of damage can it cause? What kind of damage does it cause? 
Pastor Mark, a few weeks ago, talked about the nursery rhyme, sticks and stones will bake my bones, but words will never hurt me. And he correctly stated that oftentimes those words hurt you, especially as a child. Those words can be devastating to you. What seems to be such a small spark can set such a blaze inside somebody's soul. And so we have to recognize our words. Our tongue can be that spark that can set off a fire in that person next to us. That can set off that fire in our spouse, in our children, in our family members, in our co-workers. I don't know about you, but I'm already starting to get a little hot under the collar on some of this. It shows how much care we have to take in our tongues when we speak. But not only does this tongue set such a large fire from such a small spark in the recipient of the words, it also sets the course for the body and life and is a reflection of the heart. So, so this forest fire that's set, up, that's set in somebody else because of our tongues also defiles ourselves because it's a reflection of what, what we are thinking within our hearts. And that this fire that's ultimately set in the person we spoke to and the fire that's in ourselves, we have to recognize where it comes from. It comes from the evilness of our hearts, and it comes from the direction of Satan. And that's why we see this phrase here as, and is set on fire by hell. It's our sinful nature. It's, it's Satan who is tempting us through this. And then it's us actually following through with the sin of the tongue. Jesus' words in Matthew 15, 18a, but the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Paul addressed the state of the hearts in the middle of his comprehensive gospel presentation in Romans uh, chapter 3, verses 9 through 12. What then are, are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. This is a passage that we as evangelists love to go out and, and proclaim the gospel to people, but first proclaim their sin, proclaim sin nature. And we often use this passage to say, look, nobody is righteous. Not a single person is. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. And then Paul, the first thing he uses as an example in this passage about the evil that comes from us is, guess what? It's regarding the tongue. Starting in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Paul literally goes right there to the tongue in talking about the evilness of people. And so our destructive tongue, which is a reflection of the heart, it defiles our entire body, and it directs our actions according to James. But this should be no surprise, because Jesus spoke of this in his Gospels as well. Mark 7.15, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. So it's not about the food that we eat that defiles us, but what is it? 
The things that come out of a person are what defile him. It's our words that defile us. And so he furthered his point that we talk about cleanliness, right? Ceremonial washing of hands by the Jews. All the different things they did to make themselves look pure. All the while, they were wretched sinners on the inside. What are the things that we do as Christians that try to make us look ceremonially pure in the exact same way? And yet at the same time, we're not guarding what's rolling off of our tongues. Now, before I get into this next section, I, I do have to say, there, there are times you preach messages that, uh, that people are like, I wonder if he directed that at me. What if the pastor said, you know, you better make sure you say this because of this person. The, I, I promise you, <laughs> there's nobody that I'm thinking of with this other than myself. But this list that I'm going to go through is something that we really should meditate on about all the different ways we sin with our tongues and how often we sin with our tongues. It's actually quite scary thinking about it. And so, Christian, what defiles you? Are you guilty of a lying tongue? God says he hates a lying tongue in Proverbs 6 17. The ninth commandment says not to bear, bear false witness against your neighbor. He also says that all liars will have their part in the lake of fire, according to Revelation 21, verse 8. Okay, if you're not guilty of that, are you guilty of a murdering tongue? Matthew 5, verse 21. Have you heard, or you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. As Rick Thomas teaches in his marriage counseling courses, that murdering somebody isn't just taking out a gun or a knife and stabbing them or shooting them. Murdering them could be speaking evil of somebody. When's the last time you spoke evil of somebody before and actually murdered them in your heart? Are you guilty of a gossiping tongue? Gossip is defined as any casual or idle talk for the purpose of spreading malicious chatter or rumors. In fact, in, in 1 Timothy 5.13, Paul goes as far as to talk about women, I don't know why he picks on women for this, but says women being idlers, going about from house to house while being gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So he talks specifically about females going around and gossiping. In Proverbs 16.28, he says that a dishonest man spreads strife and a whisperer separates close friends. So, we're not to be gossiping with our tongues either. In fact, the exact opposite is what's commanded of us in Scripture, Proverbs 26.20. For lack of wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no whisperer, contention quiets down. So, when there's a fire ablazing out there, when you stop feeding it wood, when you stop gossiping about it, the fire dies out. When you keep on gossiping, guess what happens to the fire? It keeps on raging. 
closely related to this, the backbiting tongue, the tail-bearing tongue, or the slandering tongue. A backbiter is someone who uses their tongue against you when you aren't present, yet they will not face you with their charges when you are there. Even in the case when somebody sins against you, your job in Scripture is to go to that person directly, one-on-one, and have that conversation with them. Not to go tell 15 other people about it. That's being slandering, backbiting, and tailbearing. Proverbs 25.23 says, Though north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue, an angry countenance. Somebody who has a backbiting tongue who's willing to go out and slander in this way typically has an angry countenance as they do this. Are you guilty of a proud or prideful tongue? A person with a prideful tongue is usually guilty of being a know-it-all or unteachable. How about the criticizing tongue? When we make statements about someone's actions to harm their reputation. Or the flattering tongue. This is one that, that is kind of one of the hidden sins out there. You know, flattery is a sin of the tongue, as we see in Psalm 5.9, and it's a form of lying. This is, when you, it's, this is when you go up to somebody and you compliment them to their face, but you won't say those same, same things about somebody behind their back. Meaning you do this to manipulate them. That's what flattery is. How about the swift tongue, where you speak too quickly without thinking or processing what the other person has said? The exaggerating tongue, which I talked about earlier. The unwholesome or curse word tongue. Colossians 3.8 and Ephesians 5.4 deals with this self-explanatory sin. Sadly, within our reform camp, we're seeing pastors out there, certain ones that are cursing from the pulpit, that are cursing from the stage and conferences. And it's not just an accidental slip of the tongue. It is, they're actually making excuses for it as to why they should be able to curse. It's a problem. How about the cursing tongue, which is a little bit different, if you hope for something bad to happen for someone? The piercing tongue, one that is one where we use to offend or insult somebody, rather than dominating our speech by grace. How about this one that's often used within married couples, the silent tongue, where you use silence to punish your spouse or punish for kids. You punish your parents or parents try to punish your kids or try to punish other people. That silent tongue is sinful. Kids specifically, it says, he who curses his father or his mother, his lamp will go out in the time of darkness. So children, be extra careful that you don't curse your parents. And let's not forget the many tongue sins listed among the transgressions of the debased mind in Romans 1. Unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. Gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. 
I don't know about you, but this is a these are a lot of sins of the tongue that we're guilty of. The worst part is in Romans 1, it says that that there's people who give hearty approval to these sins, to those who practice them. And so, now that I think we're all beaten up thoroughly, myself included, let's dig into why these sins continue in our lives. Number three, the power of our tongue, verses seven and eight. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. So we think about the taming of animals. We consider dogs and birds and and even some lesser-known pets. Yet throughout history, humans have been able to tame every type of bird of the air, creature of the sea, and beast of the land. Which means that the Flintstones were not so far-fetched, were they? I'm not a fan of, people who know me, not a fan of dogs in the house, not a fan of uh, house cats in the house. If I could have a dinosaur, I'd have thought about that one. This passage says that the greatest of the animals have been tamed throughout history. Even dinosaurs have been tamed at the time that humans live at dinosaurs. And yes, they live together. We we're both made on day six of creation. And yet, while those animals were tamed, you know what has not been conquered by us? Our tongues. We can conquer a T-Rex, and yet not our tongue. As James says, it's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. Proverbs 18.21 says that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Psalm 140.1-3 Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their heart and stir up wars continually. They make their tongue sharp as a serpent, and under their lips is the venom of asps. Which is exactly what Paul quotes in Romans 3. So we don't need to analyze our actions very long, do we, before we recognize the lethal power of our tongue. So far we've realized, number one, the inability to perfectly bridle our tongue, number two, the unrighteousness of our tongue, number three, the power of our tongue, and now to point number four, the hypocritical utterances of our tongue. Verse 10, from the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. James already provided the backdrop for this verse back in chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. So we are called, even though it is impossible to do, we are called to bridle our tongue we're still responsible for what comes out of our mouth. And that furthermore, the same tongue that we use to praise God, to bless others, is the same tongue that we sin with. It's so easy to bless somebody one minute 
and curse the next. If you don't believe me, how many, now don't raise your hands, but how many of you married couples were in the middle of an argument and the phone rang? And then somehow that angry tone immediately turned to, hey, how you doing today? Within seconds, bless, curse. God doesn't call us to be double-tongued in this manner. We read in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verses 23 and 24, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. This passage deals with not being two-faced when going to God, right? Not, not bringing our offering there until we've reconciled with our brother. How about our tongues? Bless and curse. And if we have cursed our brother or sister, we need to be reconciled with that brother or sister before we come and take an offering to the Lord. Before we go praise God, be reconciled to the one you cursed. Now, why is that? Well, James gives us two illustrations here. Verse 11. This is one of those great passages. He just gives it right to you. You don't have to think of it yourself. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Verse 11. So you go to your refrigerator, you put your cup, and you get filtered water, nice cold filtered water. You become satisfied with that water. And every time you go to the fridge and you put your cup to the fridge, what do you expect to get? More fresh water. It would be incomprehensible to you that you would take that cup and go to the fridge and get bitter tasting water. Right? How can bitter and fresh water both come from the same spout? And if you got bitter water from your refrigerator, you would know something's wrong. Maybe it didn't replace your filter quick enough or something else happened there. Verse 12 provides another one. Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce fresh. So in the same manner, if we had a fig tree in our yard, we'd expect to go out and harvest figs. We wouldn't expect it to have olives nor anything else on that fig tree. We wouldn't drink ocean water thinking that this is going to be the same water coming out of our filtered fridge. And so James tells us that our tongue ought not to behave in the same way. Just like that fridge, just like the fig tree, just like the fresh water not producing salt, our tongue is meant to be the exact same way. That it's supposed to be filled with grace filled with blessings about God and blessings to one another. And so we have to have this ability, this inner ability, by the power of the Holy Spirit living within us, to bridle our tongues. 
we have to make a conscious effort to recognize what's coming out defiles us. And that if we claim Christ, if we claim we are born again, a new heart, what should be proceeding from that new heart? Should be lots of good stuff. And we have to recognize that, that as a corollary to this, a lot of us pat ourselves on the back because we're faithfully attending church every Sunday. We're doing humanitarian work. We donate lots of money to both the church as well as to other organizations. Even having top-notch theology, right? It's great to have theology. I love studying the Bible. I love reading Christian books. And yet, if we've not devoted time to control our tongue, it's a problem. So, so far we've covered, number one, the inability to perfectly bridle our tongue. Number two, the unrighteousness of our tongue. Number three, the power of our tongue. Number four, the hypocritical utterances of our tongue. And now our last point, that we're going to be judged by our tongues. This entire passage was prefaced by verses 1 and 2a. Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment we all stumble in many ways. Every one of us is going is to give an account for every idle word we've spoken. Teachers are going to be held to even higher standard. It terrifies me to stand up here today and preach. It terrifies me every time I speak in a conference or another church for this reason. Because we're going to be held to even a higher standard. As one commentator stated, James's point is that no believer should begin any form of teaching God's word without a deep sense of the seriousness of this responsibility. To sin with a tongue when alone or with one or two persons is bad enough. But to sin with a tongue in public, especially while acting as a speaker for God, is immeasurably worse. Speaking for God carries with it great implications both for good and ill. This goes even when we evangelize on the square in Medina here. That people see the kindness and gentleness of our countenance. That doesn't mean that we can't preach the gospel. It doesn't mean that we can't give apologetics and, and really press into people the gospel. But it does mean we have to be really, really careful with our tongue. Now, this passage again is prefaced in that the teachers of the word have to be especially wary. But how many of you Christians who aren't necessarily teachers have given counsel to another brother or sister using God's word? I would hope every one of you. And if that's the case, guess what? You're also teaching. This passage equally applies to you. And so because we all sin in many ways, none of us are exempt from sinning with our tongues, we do have choices to make when we speak. Proverbs 10, verses 18 to 21. He who conceals hatred has lying lips, and he who spreads slander is a fool. When there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. But he who restrains his lips is wise. The tongue of the righteous is as choice silver. The heart of the wicked is worth little. 
the lips of the righteous feed many. Or listen to Proverbs 12, verses 17 to 22 here and see the compare and contrast in this passage. He who speaks truth tells what is right, but a false witness deceives. There is one who speaks rationally like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips will be established forever, but a lying tongue is only for a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but counselors of peace have joy. No harm befalls the righteous, but the wicked are filled with trouble. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal faithfully are his delight. And so we see this compare and contrast even in this passage in the Old Testament, and it talks about the choices we are to make with our tongues. And that this has to be at the forefront of our minds as we go about life. Because I guarantee you, Christian, everybody's watching. Believers are watching, and most importantly, unbelievers are watching. So what does all this mean? Well, how well are you controlling your tongue? That's what it comes down to, right? This is the test of the Christian faith, one of the tests that James puts forth. And while it is untamable, God's still going to hold us accountable for every word we speak. Proverbs 21-23 says, He who guards his mouth and his tongue guards his soul from troubles. We need to be on the lookout. We need to guard our tongue. We need to think before we speak. Now, if you're born again, I urge you, the text urges you, to continue to mold your tongue into one that only gives fresh water. Right? That's our end goal, right? That our sanctification, our end goal is to continue to purify our speech, which also means that our heart needs to continue to be purified. We need to continue in God's word. We need to continue in prayer that that our tongue continues to get molded in a Christ-like fashion. And that we can use that tongue to go out and glorify him the way we're called to. And I tell you, when it comes to our tongues, and arguably the most important thing we are to do with our tongues is to go out into the world and make disciples of every nation. It's to go out and evangelize. Like what we learn here, yeah, it's to edify our souls. Yes, it's to edify our families. Yes, it's for us to grow in sanctification. And all of that is for us to go out into the lost and dying world to take his gospel. And you know how that gospel is given to others? Romans 10 verse 14, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? And verse 17, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. That word of Christ is coming from our lips. That word of Christ is what we are sharing off of our tongues that are supposed to be being used for good and not for sin. A tongue that we're to carefully guard. That same tongue that we curse one with is the same one we're giving the blessed gospel with. Now, if you're sitting here today and you're not born again, I want you to hear this, that you can be forgiven for your sins. 
Each of the sins I brought up today and every other can be washed from you. You can be separated from your sin as far as the east is from the west. And that the gospel is this, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That if you're not born again, you stand condemned because of your sin in front of God. That the moment you die, you're going to face God, have to give accounting for everything you've ever done. And no amount of good works are going to pay for your sin. You're going to be sent to hell for eternity and have to pay your sin to God Almighty who's pouring out his everlasting wrath onto you. And yet, with that same tongue that you're sinning with in an uncontrollable fashion, is the same tongue that God commands you to repent with and to believe the gospel. Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're an unbeliever, use that tongue to repent of your sin. Lord, I just thank you for gathering us together today and in such a weighty passage that as I'm sure is as hard to listen to as it is to, to preach. Lord, I just pray that in our sanctification that you help us with, with controlling our tongue, with growing in, in holiness throughout our entire body, but especially our tongues, which so much evil can pour forth from. So we pray for your strength in this, Lord, to sanctify us in this area of our lives. And then to go out and use that same tongue that, that we bless you with, to continue to bless you out in this lost and dying world and to preach that gospel message to the lost and dying world and use our tongues for what it was created to do. In your holy and name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.com. Dot O-R-G. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.